0: crime news right now there's so many of those like dna cases both like people who have been unidentified for years suddenly being identified but also like this uh ongoing we've identified the murderer of such and such person but the murderer is deceased and and most of those cases they've been gone for a really long time but it really is uh that blizzard
1: no, it's an avalanche. Oh, it's
0: the avalanche, yeah. No, I was saying both. This
1: is the both. DNA avalanche that I mentioned probably like two years ago. At this point,
0: yeah, yeah. You had a really good point that it was gonna end up like we we were gonna be able to watch it unfold because we just happened to live in the right time. Which it's it, it's interesting to watch it. It's all like, there's part of it that's a little frustrating. It's like, why didn't they do this earlier? But I do understand it's about time and resources.
1: Well, and the technology has changed as well. So I have actually been, I'm a big fan of DNA evidence. And then I just recently, I have a, a case that has blown my mind.
0: What happened with that case?
1: Well, it was. It's a case where a young woman was killed, and a million years pass. <laughs> I don't know. It was like thirty years pass, and they um, it comes up, and for some reason, I, probably cold case funding or something, the evidence is tested for DNA, like finally, like thirty years after her death, and they find two profiles. One of the profiles is on her pantyhose and other places too. It goes through it. And then there's a drop of blood on her hand. And this is a little confusing because from the information I had, it looked like they had a picture of her, like while she's still laying there at the crime scene, or at least where her body was found. And the blood is on her hand there. And... So they find two different profiles, one of of a male that shows up in various places, including on her pantyhose, and then this blood droplet. And they go after the guy's DNA on the pantyhose. And so the blood droplet, uh, the prosecutor is like, yeah, it uh, it wasn't this guy. And they're like, well, how do you know? And he's like, well, because this guy was four years old at the time, right? And so... You know, I can't logically follow how they can, uh, unless they've got a good explanation for why this kid's drop of blood is there, how can you rely on the pantyhose DNA, but not the blood DNA?
0: Yeah.
1: And so that's really blown my mind because I haven't seen a case like that previously. And it, I mean, there's some things that are obvious answers, right? Um, Like crossing contamination or like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, could be addressed here, but I don't have the opportunity to be like, did you do this? This, this actually happened at this point. I mean, I think it's probably, I don't think it's quite 20 years ago, but I mean, it's 15 years ago, probably. Right. And so I bet technology now might show something different, but you know, that's not going to happen. Um, the guy and the guy was convicted and you know, he spent the rest of his life in jail. And so now I go, well, wait a second. Well, how do you know? Right. In this case, it was pretty clear a four-year-old didn't do it. Right. But to me, I'm going, well, how did, but you've got to explain that evidence. Otherwise it, it defies logic.
0: Yeah, I so there's been a few cases like that for me over the years. That one when you like sent me that, I've just started digging into it to see if I can like wrap my head around it. But I've, you know, I've heard of cases where there's cross contamination from emergency services, both police and like paramedics. I've gotten a little skeptical on trace DNA, which, you know, there's quite a bit of, you call it new technology. I will say they're getting smaller and smaller with the amount of DNA they need to build a profile and, to, and then to verify it. And that concerns me because, you know, we leave a lot of DNA places.
1: Well, and there's certain things that um, that go into a killer's DNA being somewhere versus DNA at a scene Right.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I'm just saying, like, there's going to come a point where if, okay, say you've got a killer who left relatively little or, I guess the better way to say it would be relatively little or none of their DNA was collected, but someone else's was. And I agree with you. Like, there's certain, like, there's very obvious DNA when it comes to strangulations and sexual assaults preceding a, a... a murder there there's specific types of dna that like yes that dna frequently points to the killer but we're, we're going to get to a point where you know there's going to have to be some balancing with trace dna like you said i i know they're following what makes sense as to the dna that a killer would leave but Crime scene texts, and then all of the people that it sort of rolls uphill from there it goes to a supervisor. Supervisor gives the results to investigators, investigators give uh, their investigative results to their supervisors, and all that gets turned into, you know, typically prosecuting attorneys um, who they're the ones who move forward with charges. I look at these cases and I wonder if we're not going to start. I guess it it sort of starts now for me in time. Like, are we going to start seeing cases in 10 years or 20 years where they collected DNA, cigarette butts, Coke cans, whatever trace DNA is available. And that's going to, you know, as DNA databases grow and grow and grow, we're going to identify a lot more people. Is it always going to point to the killer? That's going to be interesting.
1: Um, I think so too. Uh, It. it's going to be a whole lot harder to convict just on like circumstantial objects, I guess. Yeah. Um, especially if everything, you know, is showing up. I do think that, um, there's going to have to be like some streamlined, uh, communication between how DNA evidence is presented to a jury by like all the prosecutors. Um, And then how the defense receives it and defends against it. It is this, like, kind of bizarre, you know, it's different. And a lot of us don't know a whole lot about it. And it becomes problematic when you rely on somebody saying, you know, oh, this is that, right? And you just take their word for it, right? And that was part of the problem with the case I, I brought up was... the prosecutor just was he was very dismissive of the blood drop like he just said like oh well that doesn't matter and I kind of I understand what he's saying but like that wouldn't have been good enough for me I don't think um I need to know where it came from and honestly it's something you're talking about a guy spending the rest of his life in jail right um and it's not the blood drop guy it's uh, the pantyhose DNA guy. And so it it just seems like if he could have elaborated a little bit and not been quite as dismissive about like, uh, it doesn't matter and you should just trust me. Kind yeah. of. Um, I think it could have been a lot different now. Granted the, The jurors uh, in that particular case, they found the guy guilty. So they took the prosecutor at his word, but it's bothersome to me. And, you know, you have to understand that that doesn't mean that I don't think the guy did it right. It's just this whole process we have um, talking about the avalanche of DNA uh, cases being, you know, resolved one way or the other. It in cases like this, I mean, what happened?
0: Yeah, that's something that you and I have actually been exploring for some side projects: is to look at uh, what happens in cases where the outcomes were not exactly what you'd expect, or even examining like specific paths and specific cases to see if they look the same now as they did when they were adjudicated. I I find that topic interesting. It's like it's like sort of got endless possibilities, which is cool. But also a little frustrating.
1: Well, we have the benefit of seeing how um, forensic evidence in uh, criminal cases has it runs a life cycle, right? Um, yeah. Now, DNA, I think, is going to be different, uh, but I think that people would have said the same thing about fingerprints, the same thing about blood types. Like, I think that, like, I and sort of waiting for like okay well is dna going to be junk science one day? I mean, I don't think it's going to be. But I have heard like recently even like a lot of fingerprint analysis that was that have been as used as evidence in criminal trials is being called basically junk science.
0: Yeah, so that's the different comparison styles and techniques. I think it could, I think it sort of boils down to what you were saying. Like we're gonna, it, it, we're not gonna be able to rely on like local rules and precedents and like holdings and cases and courtrooms. I think there is gonna be like a need for almost like a policies and procedures set uh, for how forensic evidence is used in, uh, and we we defined that recently. It, you know how how does science and the legal system collide. There's going to need to be much more stringent rules for how that's presented to a jury, because the the way that it the way that it all works now, it's sort of part of a story. And if you're able to bend that story different ways, to be quite frank, you can fool a jury. As a prosecutor or a defense attorney.
1: Well, or convince them. I mean, if you're not, if there's no no ill will behind it.
0: Well, can- well I think convincing is the main part, but I'm saying, you know, just because somebody is uh, very convincing, and I'm not saying they're, like, do you believe that all prosecutors and all defense attorneys believe what they're saying to a jury?
1: I hope not. <laughs>
0: that, that, that's what so, I mean
1: because it literally so and that's a big gap that um, can be really hard uh, I think to try and overcome, which is you know the prosecutor is representing the state it has to work with it ha- with what it has to work with. The defense attorney is representing the defendant they have to work with, what they have to work with okay
0: and i think that's the part most people miss
1: um a defense attorney more than likely they never asked their client if they did it or not um in theory a defense attorney could defend their client within the scope of giving them what's required you know under our constitution as a the best defense possible without ever even speaking to their client just based on the facts of the case, they could mount a defense, right?
0: Um,
1: Because, you know, defense 101 in criminal court is, you know, first of all, you try to make it like a crime didn't actually occur. And then if a crime, you know, if it's proved that a crime did occur, you try to make it that your client didn't do it. Right. And it is, it's astounding to me what I see happening. And, I've always felt like jurors, they really, I feel like, I don't think they do it like to be anything bad or like, I don't feel like they're not paying attention because they don't want to be paying attention. I just think stuff flies right over people's head and they just want to get out of there, right? (laughs) And I think that that's where the lapse in communication happens. But to answer your question, no, I mean, a, a defense attorney, in theory putting the case together, they could go into court and they could defend anyone and they don't have to believe a word they're saying. Okay. Because they're just presenting what they have to work with. Right. Just like a prosecutor is putting on what they have to work with.
0: Yeah. I, I, yes, that's sort of, that's where I was headed with this. And I'll say if, if, I don't know if anyone listens to Wrongful Convictions. It's a really good podcast. Uh, it's got a couple of different hosts: uh, Jason Fromm and uh, Maggie Freeling now both host different episodes on there. It has like really good examples of like how cases can go wrong, um, and even though the you know podcast is about wrongful convictions, it gives a really good overview of how trials are not what you expect them to be. Um, and the other thing that happens with trials is you just said something that's really important. I hear this all the time. I never talked to him. I never heard from my attorney. My attorney never came to visit me. My attorney never came to see me. Um, I would say in a murder case, definitely a multiple murder case, like that's a thing where it's problematic. But I would say in anything under that, they don't necessarily need to talk to you. They can look at it and determine what's going on.
1: Well, and... It, it they really can and i know that and it's so bizarre and it's so hard to wrap your head around it and I, i've always had like a trouble explaining the gap like how you get over the gap because you're sitting there if you're the if you're the defendant right you're sitting there and your life depends on what this person does right um your life as far as like are you going to freedom treated? yeah are you going to go to jail and you know your defense attorney there's only so many things that they can do regardless, right? Now, occasionally, every once in a while, I I find some weird anomaly that I go, wait a second, that's more like real life than courtroom, right? And I wonder, like, well, how did they make that leap there? And so it is really confusing at times. But for the most part, whenever I look at... Uh, and the reason we talk about this is because my like best hope would be like somebody, one of our listeners would be on jury duty and they'd sit for a trial and they'd be like, well, remember when John and Meg were talking about paying attention and how you need to do this or that or the other, right? That'd be great. Because to me, that's, I mean, how do you get to people, right? Otherwise, who knows? And everybody... However, okay, so everybody has to, you know, if you're called for jury duty and you sit there, well, the Constitution and, like, the way that our legal system is set up, it's supposed to be to a jury of our peers, right? Yeah. It's not supposed to be to, you know, a panel of experts. And so, you know, it now i do think dna is going to it was like so complicated and now it's not as complicated right i mean now it's it's pretty conclusive at this point because there was a period of time i would say like late 90s maybe i I might be off but like late 90s you're talking about really confusing lab reports uh citing exclusions right um and like not enough information to really compel a jury one way or the other. But like when you're talking about a sample of DNA and, you know, the defendant cannot be excluded while 99.9% of the rest of the population can be excluded, that kind of thing, it was very confusing Right. And so now it's kind of cycled through, and now they're saying, oh, this is like, you know, this is basically a hundred percent match. Right. They're able to say that now, which is actually different than an exclusion, but it's becoming this easier thing.
0: Yeah, it is. And so many of these cases, uh, people talk about the CSI effect. I think we're finally getting past that. Um, I think it's still expected in some regard, but I think. Uh, experts and lawyers are learning how to work together to talk to juries in a way that juries can understand those additional things. Um,
1: The funniest part about like the legal system, honestly, to me, like in what we're talking about right now, is that like the defense attorney and the prosecutor like should be able to sit and have a cup of coffee and like not hate each other.
0: Yeah, even in an adversarial system. And like, I think that's the idea that like the common person has is that like they're supposed to be because people get bent out of shape when a when a big popular crime happens and it's pretty clear that you know they've they've got the person who's guilty of whatever it is, um you know, people will go off on the defense attorneys, even people that are appointed as defense attorneys, and that's not new. That's been going on as long as like we've had access to trials. but the truth is. Those people have a job to do, and that job is preserving the rights, not just of the people that are sitting there that they're defending or that they're prosecuting. The prosecutors and the defense attorneys, they have a job to preserve the system itself so that everybody's rights are uh, upheld.
1: Right, and the key is neutrality, right? I mean, everybody yeah. should be neutral and I mean, it it doesn't happen that way because people get really passionate about things, and you can, especially like in heinous crimes or in like um, what a defense attorney considers to be like a malicious prosecution, you can see the counts counselors, um, the the attorneys' feelings sort of spill out into the case, and that's always like the worst because I mean, I know it mean it it's more sensationalized and it's. You know, it's a better story. But to me, it always takes away from, like, is justice happening here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I hate to hear a prosecutor or a defense attorney give their opinion of whether or not the person did it. Because yeah. once they when, – when, ha- when you're in court and you're doing your case – you don't have to say it like you, you say it without saying it. Right. Yeah. You put the evidence forward and like anybody on. And so when I hear people saying like, I can't believe anybody would even defend him talking about whomever, whatever criminal. Right. Yeah. I'm like, well, this it's clear. They don't understand how the justice system works. Right. Because any defense attorney, regardless of how heinous and terrible the crime is, could put on a defense for a defendant and they should right they should defend them as as best they possibly can because our system allows for that our system allows for this like stark defense because the evidence will overcome it and that's how you know you've gotten you know a rightful conviction right
0: yeah and i i could go on about this all day we could have like a whole podcast
1: i'm so sorry no no you're you're fine it seemed relevant at the time i brought it up though so
0: no it is is relevant (laughs) um there's a, a couple things though related to like court stuff did you see this woman out of wisconsin attacking her defense attorney in court
1: i did it was hilarious
0: Okay so I'm, I this is uh, the New York Post has this long crime had it it popped up a lot of places and it sort of briefly went viral um the it's this is in a Green Bay Wisconsin courtroom uh it's actually Judge Thomas J Walsh's courtroom so they were it, it, it's not anything but a status hearing all they're doing is um, they're moving the court Date for a murder trial from March 6th to May 15th. So they're delaying it by a couple of months. It's actually, a, th- did you see what it was all about?
1: Well, I did. And the judge sort of like reprimands her attorney.
0: Yeah, yeah. But hold on. Did you see why we we're in court?
1: Oh, uh, because she dismembered somebody. It's crazy
0: because like it, like this, these are the weirdest sentences. I like you read sentences and like. It's like, there's no way that can be real. But so the woman involved here, her name is Taylor Shibizness. And that's spelled exactly like it sounds, Shibizness. So this is a murder trial that's about to happen from a February, 2022 murder. A young man, 25 year old, Shad Therian, was something happened with him and Taylor Shibizness. And Taylor during sex with Shad decapitated him and then continued to perform sexual acts on his lifeless body. And she mutilated his corpse with a bread knife, like one of those big serrated bread knives. She then stuffed his severed head and his penis in a bucket. Um, She put other body parts in a crock pot and then she left them for Shad's mom to find. And then they found Taylor, who is married to someone else. Uh, She was found at home, uh, covered in blood, and she told cops at her arrest to have fun trying to figure out where all the organs went uh, for the body. So this is apparently like a pretty uh, serious meth-fueled, event and it ends up, so it ends up with Shabizness, Taylor Shabizness being charged with first degree intentional homicide, mutilation of a corpse and third degree sexual assault. General, uh, I, I guess it's agreement. I don't want to know. I don't want to go too far. And I know it's like wrong to say that everyone's agreeing to this. They've had a lot of hearings about her mental health and apparently she was, Uh, She's been receiving treatment for bipolar disorder for many, many years at this point. Like, I think it's like 12 years. Um, But a court-appointed doctor found Taylor to be competent to stand trial. And the defense attorney is a guy named Quinn Jolly. And he basically, he tells the judge that he's got some motions he wants to file because these different defense experts and these different uh, prosecutions experts, he may need to hire like a new expert to review the case and testify about competency. And as he's saying this, cause you know, he's, a, you know, and they, they bring up the details every time they come into court here. But the bottom line is this woman was smoking meth with someone that she killed. Um, and then like chains this guy up and does things to him while they're sitting there she leaps after Quinn Jolly and like it takes multiple deputies in this courtroom to take her back to the ground uh, they all get tangled up and when, when she pops back up in the video she acts like she has no idea what's going on
1: Yeah. um, So just to be clear, she's attacking her own attorney.
0: Correct. She's attacking Quinn Jolly, who is her defense attorney.
1: And, man, I don't even know what to do with any of that.
0: I mean, mean, she's sitting there arguing. I mean, he is, uh, she's sitting there while he is arguing on her behalf. Like, he's just explaining, it's very procedural. He's basically saying, look, we are, we have some questions about our competency. We've had these experts come in. We need a full review and we want to get that before you judge in an a motion. And we'd like to delay it from March to May, which is
1: Do you standard. Think that's what made her mad though? I think, I
0: think she did not. I think she doesn't like people calling her anything that sounds like she's mentally ill or she's crazy or she's insane. I think she's very offended by that idea.
1: Uh, do you think that, well, I thought maybe she was playing it up.
0: Maybe. It could be, it could be that she did it to prove the defense attorney's point.
1: Um, well, and the issue, what was that issue was that, uh, there was supposed to be a competency report turned in like the prior Friday and it didn't happen. I, and I think this was maybe on like Tuesday or Wednesday and like, they had made all the arrangements they were asking for the judge to approve on Monday, like, after they didn't turn the report in like they were supposed to.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I felt like maybe um, she was getting aggravated. I mean, not that it really matters because, like, she's literally never getting out of prison, right? But, like, she might be have been aggravated that she didn't feel like he was doing his job or whatever, but things like that happen. I mean, you've got to coordinate a lot of things. uh, And it's, you know, it's never, I would assume, I assume he's appointed. I I don't actually know, but I assume he's appointed and um, he, you know, he's got a ton of things going on and uh, they are trying to get her. I assume everybody said she was competent. And so he's still going at the angle that she's not competent. And, I don't know. Any sort of lashing out like that is, I don't know that that's what crazy people do.
0: Well, in this, I mean, I would say just based on the offense that they definitely have a mental health issue, whether or not that mental health rises to the level of either competency or insanity, which would like, so they have pled, they put in an NGI plea here in Green Bay.
1: For her. Not guilty by reason
0: of insanity. Yeah, yeah, so that's the plea that's in. And because it's going down that way, um, Wisconsin is very specific in how it handles it with regards to it being two-pronged. So if someone has pled not guilty by reason of insanity, there's a couple of different ways that that could be accurate. So they start with, are they even competent to participate in their own defense? That's where they start. And that doctor says she's competent. That doesn't mean she's not, that doesn't mean she's guilty. That just means she can go through the proceedings at this point in time. Based on what I saw there, it's either an act or she's probably not competent. It's sort of one or the other, because you, like, if you've got somebody who can't sit through their own trial without attacking their own, and they didn't attack the prosecutor, they didn't attack the judge, they did not attack, attack the marshals or the courtroom deputies, they or a random spectator, they attacked their attorney sitting next to them.
1: Well, and I just want to point out, so like I was saying earlier, defense attorneys can, in theory, defend anybody, and she... Her parting words to the police were like, you know, good luck finding all the organs. I mean, with, unless he's taking a guilty plea to them, like, this is really the only option. Uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. Like, it, because how do you come back from that?
0: Oh, you, you can't come back from her words. And she's found covered in the guy's blood. It's pretty clearly... I mean, I, I don't know what's wrong with her. I just know... That watching it, like I don't get shocked by that many things that really happen this in this is
1: shocking. Yeah, this is pretty shocking because I, nobody really knew what happened. Like it was just insanity.
0: Yeah, and so even that appearance alone, um, I think it affects her case. And I just wanted well, to bring it up here because, like, it's we we don't have like it happens all the time that something disrupts the courtroom.
1: But right. Well, you saw where he um, the the defense attorney asked to be re- to be removed from the case. Yeah. <laughs> so not only that, no but it. on the radio,
0: the radio chatter. They all knew where the problem had come from. Well, re- it,
1: when he has to be removed for the, from the case, the judge tells him to file the appropriate motion. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he doesn't even um, address it. He's like, file the appropriate motion. And I'm going, well, clearly he can't represent. I mean, who who's going to represent somebody that you have to split your um, defense time between, you know, talking to the jury, uh, examining witnesses and guarding yourself from your client?
0: Yeah. And boxing. I mean, that's the thing. There's, there's like a level of boxing. And, you know, Quinn's an older guy. And he clearly, um, he's a senior attorney at his firm. He, he is a, uh, it looked like he was appointed in this case and you could just see on his face that he was like, I have made a mistake. I've made well, a when mistake. When you're
1: appointed, you don't really have a choice. So
0: yeah, but like, like he, he feels like it's on him, but I don't, I don't know what's happening in this video. If you get a chance to watch it, uh, her name is literally Taylor ship business, S C H a business. Is that right? Shub is it?
1: yeah, it's just like mind shub business.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so uh that was the first thing I wanted to mention in terms of true crime news as we're half an hour into the episode. Um, but I was I was just sort of mentioning that because it, I found it fascinating. And then because we're playing around in Canada right now, I wanted to mention something. I saw this, I don't know if you saw these articles. It came out like Valentine's Day in the morning after um these very critical articles. Uh, This one I found to be, this is from CBC Canada. Um, uh, It has the most interesting title, but that's not even like what's funny about it to me. This is about the Toronto police. Did you see they've got something going on up there? I did. (laughs) So the the title of this article, which is by uh, John Reddy and Sean Jeffords for CBC news. um, It was originally posted uh, the, crack a dawn on uh, Valentine's Day. But uh, th- the title is Toronto police spending $337,000 on a podcast to avoid perception. They're making copaganda podcast series. 24 shades of blue has limited reach critics question. Why deal was soul sourced. Uh, and here's some of the things <laughs> that's 700 comments on it, but um it, it's got a picture of like the uh, deputy police chief and um, the the former deputy police chief and the podcasters. And here's what the caption says: "The police and their podcasters. Toronto police former deputy chief uh, Shauna Coxon, uh, who's on the left, she's a, the woman in the picture. If you guys go look this up, uh, brought forward the idea of a podcast for the service. Obian Axe, run by Andy O'Brien and Axel uh, Villamil." Given a sole source contract to produce the show, former chief James Raymer, um, who is in this picture, uh, extended the show despite its limited audience, meaning it's not doing well. Um, and I will say that, like, anytime you have a police agency who gives some kind of exclusive rights to a podcast company, they have done the wrong thing. Um, I've seen this happen with uh, the Audio Chuck people, they had this red ball. Uh, podcast that they put out. Um, that's, so audio Chuck is the company behind, uh, crime junkie and they tried to give some exclusive rights to crime junkie and it didn't go well. And also it had about the same reception. It was one of those things where honestly, it's a boring podcast, uh, about a fascinating story. And whenever that is the result, you sort of figure out pretty quickly that you probably shouldn't have been doing whatever you were doing. Here's here's the uh, what the article says Toronto police are spending more than $300,000 worth of taxpayer money on a podcast with a limited audience the podcast procured by a third produced by a third party company is called 24 shades of blue its objective according to a statement provided by police is to offer a behind the scenes look at policing that takes more time than tradi- traditional media would offer toronto police declined to be interviewed for this story CBC Toronto was only able to obtain the price tag by filing a freedom of information request. That request took months to get back, resulting in this story being published now as City Council prepares for the final debate on a budget that includes $48 million in new money for the Toronto Police Service. Toronto Police Service said the podcast had reached 94,500 people, tracked as either plays on streaming services or views on YouTube. Some videos have attracted more than 10,000 views each, but most totals are in the hundreds. That means each audience member was worth about $3 of public money. Documents obtained by CBC Toronto show the podcast creation was a sole source deal, initially worth $90,000. Despite the pilot season's limited reach, former chief James Raymer signed off on a three-year extension worth $247,800. This situation shows just how little control the public has over police spending. And these are according to documents uh, from November of 2021. So, you know, we're moving ahead in time a year and a half ago at least. A spokesperson said TPS followed its own purchasing rules, which are different than those of the city of Toronto, but the podcast was obtained without ever being open to a competitive bidding process that could potentially net a better price or product. That's actually not a bad deal for four years of a podcast uh, focused on you.
1: That's not the point.
0: I know many, if not most Torontians, uh, Torontonians have never heard of this podcast, which further reduces any scrutiny it might receive city councilors, meanwhile, don't have a say in this type of spending, despite being members of the body that approves the overall Toronto Police Services budget. That responsibility falls to the toronto police services board john sewell a former mayor of toronto who frequently attends police board meetings said it amounts to the service having a free hand the police get money for anything they want and then it's business as usual he told cbc toronto he said it's unclear why the police need a podcast they're in the media all the time what do they need a podcast for uh Counsel Josh Matlow said he's happy TPS is trying to communicate with the community but doesn't know why the deal was sole source and said it's unacceptable police wouldn't release the price simply when asked. So apparently these podcasters actually approached the police in 2020 and they said, hey, we want to do a podcast. It's how much it would cost. That's all pretty standard, but you don't typically charge the subjects of the podcast like that. Um, there's typically some financing that uh, would go into this. Ultimately, what they said they were doing here is that they were uh, using this as a way to recruit. That That's what, it, if you dig way down into... Uh,
1: is that uh, a problem?
0: No, not at all. Not for, no, I don't think it's a problem. The, but the Toronto Police Services did say they did not... Want it to be viewed as a recruiting tool, but if you dig through the paperwork, it is definitely that was the original intent was for it to be a recruiting tool.
1: Um, well, it's interesting. Um, did you were you able to finish?
0: Finish the article. Uh,
1: just the whole story? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, I didn't want to
1: interrupt, but no, I just wanted to say so. Like, it, this is interesting because it, for one thing, it's negative about this particular podcast because it, it met with scrutiny, right? Um, the problem wasn't the podcast, right? The problem yeah. was the fact that the board and the chief, uh, cause the chief signed off on the deal and, <laughs> um, it, uh, because they did a trial run and then they signed a longer contract and, in the end, it amounts to like three hundred thousand um, dollars. Regardless of the amount of money, right? It could be three dollars, right? Um, if it's when you're a police chief and you are part of the uh, police responsibility board or whatever it's called, um, you need to be in touch with the people you're representing, and the fact that like they're not going to be happy that you spent three hundred thousand dollars on a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. No. That's- during the article, you say former repeatedly, so I think this problem may be solved.
0: Uh, no, it doesn't appear to be, um, and here's why that is. Uh, the contracts that the Police Services Board approved, they go on whether But the original problem is still employed or not.
1: Okay, but that's – to me, that's not the problem. The problem is – the problem isn't the fact that these people got a contract to do this podcast and they're being paid the taxpayers' dollars. The problem is the fact that they had people in position that did that without regard, and they're not in position anymore.
0: Okay, I just want to – okay, so, yes. So
1: it won't happen again, right? That's –
0: No. So – uh, it's different than that. The person they're talking about being the deputy chief at the time, who was Shauna Coxon, she was a police officer since 1996. She's currently the deputy commissioner of strategy, strategy governance, and performance for the city of Toronto. She did not get fired. I don't want to give that impression. She got promoted.
1: Okay. Well, and, and it's, I'm not, the fact that like somebody could say, well, that's great. Let's do it it's not a reflection of them making a bad decision. It just isn't a decision that matches their audience. Right.
0: Yeah. And one of the biggest problems here wasn't even the idea of the podcast itself. It was the process they went about and excluding like when you just push it through the police services board, the way they did, they exclude like public input and they exclude the oversight that would come with that.
1: Right, and if I were involved in something like that, um, well, before this ever even occurred, if I was on a board, I would have something in place where there's a certain amount of discretionary money that people, certain people, can spend without approval, right? Yeah. However, everything else has to go through the board, and then every single board member has to be paying attention to what they're voting on, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Which doesn't happen a lot of times. It doesn't sound like that is quite what happened. Um, It does say in the article, the board was responsible for how the money's allocated. And then it says that the chief signed off on the deal. Um, More than likely, you know, you've got some podcast producers who want some money and they know that the government has money. Right. They I don't know that there was any sort of connection, but this is pretty much just smoozing and how it works. Right. Yeah. They got themselves into a situation where, um, you know, in theory, I guess since it happened, they were allowed to do what they did, right? (laughs) The backlash is a different story.
0: Yeah. I, You know, I look at this. And so for people who don't know and don't want to look it up or don't care about it, uh, Toronto, size-wise, like like placing people, it's like basically Chicago, Illinois. They have about the same population but they have vastly different budgeting styles in Canada than they do. Like for instance, the current budget of the Chicago police department is just under $2 billion. And that is not what was happening with uh, the Toronto police services budget. Toronto doesn't even have half the same amount of people, but not the same amount of, not the same amount of money.
1: Right. And you know, Obviously, uh, it would be a very in-depth analysis that should take place. But you're also like hiring like somebody to analyze this information, which takes away money available. But you have to like ask yourself: so the people who are actually paying for this, right? Because police budgets would be. Um, it would be taken from the taxes right raised by the citizen, however they do it, right, property taxes or whatever, and so that's where that money's coming from, and so you have to say, like, well, does everybody really want you know to pay three dollars for us to make this podcast <laughs> right yeah, um, and you know you need to be familiar when you're in a public service job like that, you need to be aware of whether or not you know this is what the people want or you know it's just not going to work out my question is like they said the reach was not very far so like what were they spending all that money on
0: i do not know the answer to that the for what like in my mind the numbers that they're talking about over that many years they're not paying a lot for promotion and uh, marketing those are not promotion and marketing numbers to me
1: Right. And, but you've also got to look at it like this. This isn't like somebody doing this friendly thing for the police department. This is somebody getting a contract job. Right. It is. Yeah. And, you know, is that something that is worth the cost? Right. And you just need people in place that like recognize whether it's actually something that people want or not. Right. Yeah. Um, and this could have gone a lot of ways and to me, it's th- this kind of thing is always gonna be something. to me, it makes podcasts look bad, right it, it sounds like it's trying to like put light on like oh podcasts are nothing and like they're spending all this money on it. Now granted, they could have made a podcast for way less than uh, whatever it was, right? I mean Probably, yeah. no question. Um, I don't know what was um, on it. I also don't know how you can do a podcast to avoid the perception of they call it copaganda, but I assume they're just being funny about propaganda, right?
0: Yeah, but, I mean the, that's that's exactly what they're doing. It's a and play so, on the word.
1: And so, like, ha, like, of co- like, of course, anything that's funded by the police that is then put out as an like an entertainment. Channel, right? A podcast, like it's going to have like the impression of pop- propaganda, whether or not they are trying to do that or not, right? Yeah. And so I, this is just like a huge disaster. I mean, I don't even see to me, it would, <laughs> you can't put a podcast out to avoid the perception of propaganda because it literally, it forwards the perception of propaganda.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Um, you know, and you know, just speaking in terms of like relative locations, Toronto is nowhere near where we've been talking about on the Highway of Tears. I just want to point that out. It's not you know we're on the far western side of Canada. Uh, Toronto is not there. Uh, if you pull it up on a map, but I thought it was an interesting sort of a view into you know not the biggest place, but like one of the bigger places where we could look at uh, sort of how police services thinks about what they do.
1: Well, and so did you immediately think to yourself, like, well, those girls could have used that, the task force for those yeah. girls could have used that $300,000, right?
0: Well, I did, you know, I, I sort of went that way. I, You know, I, I got to tell you, like, I know we talked a lot so far in today's episode, and I have a piece of, the story that we're putting together here, but it's not going to be like what people think. And you can, you can find this different places. Um, there's a website called Eve's lab, that has this uh, CBS news covered it. It all gets lumped under the highway of tears. And it's sort of like what you're saying, like, yeah, they could have used that $300,000, but what they really could have used is people paying some attention. Because um, what I'm going to pull up next is, is from 2012 and it's related to the Highway of Tears murder. But like this part of the, this story literally sent my head spending because there's something seriously wrong with what's going on here. Um, and you know, again, this is the RCMP. So this would be like if the FBI was doing something and it was like, what the hell is happening? The story that, that I'm, Primarily pulling from, although I'm still on Dying Words blog and I have uh, Eve Lazarus, I'm primarily going to pull from a story by Paula Rosa. Um, and Paula Rosa, he, he writes for 48 hours. I assume everybody knows what that is. Uh, 48 hours, Dateline, all of these shows where you sort of can get your weekly fix For a very long time, people could get their weekly fix of true crime. Today, it's not so much the case because, you know, everybody's got a podcast. Everybody's got a YouTube channel. TikTok will spew true crime at you 24 hours a day. But the title of this is 48 Hours, Highway of Tears Murder Solved with Improbable DNA Sample. And I wanted to start with just this uh, piece of the story. Paul asked a really good question in his opener. How did the Royal Canadian Mounted Police working on the Highway of Tears cases in British Columbia uncover an American serial killer who may well turn out to be a hidden Ted Bundy? Uh, It's it's all because Canadian investigators preserved the DNA sample at a time when most police departments had no idea what DNA was or how important it would become later in solving crimes. The story begins in the summer of 1974 when 16-year-old Colleen McMillan, who lived in the remote town of 100 Mile House in British Columbia, Canada, told her little brother, Sean, that she was going out with friends. She said, don't tell mom I'm hitchhiking. And she walked away, said Sean. Uh, He was talking to Peter Van Sent at CBS News in 2012. One month later, her body was found about 30 miles from the family home. For Colleen's two younger brothers, Sean and Kevin, and their family, it was an unspeakable tragedy. It's a lifelong disaster is what it is. It was sad the way it happened, and we're sad today, and we'll be sad till the day that we die. Colleen became another victim along Canada's Highway of Tears, officially Highway 16, which cuts across British Columbia and is a major east-west road used by truckers and loggers. Over the years, so many young women, the official list says 18, but locals say there's many more, either went missing or were found murdered near the highway that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP. Created a special task force in 2005, it was a monumental task culling through investigative reports that date back to 1969 and stretch over the past four decades. The task force spends six million dollars annually to investigate the killers, but had no luck solving any cases until this year. And Colleen was the key. Now I'm not contradicting myself with some of the stuff I've said earlier about the budgeting. There, this everything that we're talking about here is talking about the span of time from 2005. To 2012 when this story this part of the story is unfolding so literally this article is written at the end of 2000 uh, in 2012 when her body was found in 1974 police also found her blouse so this is colleen mcmillan's blouse and on that blouse was dna of course there was no dna testing in 1974 dna was not used in criminal cases until 1986 according to most reports But luckily for all, the RCMP preserved that blouse in a very careful way. As the decades passed and DNA became a key tool of police work, investigators took a second look at that sample. And in 2007, they entered it into various databases of known criminals. There were no concrete hits that came back, but police were told that the shirt contained the DNA of an unknown male, whoever he was, likely Colleen's killer. As DNA technology advanced, scientists were able to enhance smaller and older samples, and this year, the forensic investigators assigned to the RCMP learned of a new procedure. That sample from Colleen's blouse was enhanced and sent to Interpol, whose database encompasses criminals from all over the world, including the United States. In May, Interpol informed the RCMP that it had received a positive hit from the sample on Colleen's blouse. It belonged to an American roofer who tried to kidnap and kill a woman back in 1995, but the woman escaped by jumping naked out of a second story window with a rope around her foot. The man was arrested at the scene. It was the oldest hit on a DNA sample in Interpol history. And now this violent roving roofer was being linked to Colleen McMillan, a 16 year old strawberry blonde from another country. The RCMP flew to Oregon, where the man had a criminal record for kidnapping and attempted murder, and they spoke with American investigators. More investigation led the Canadian police to conclude that this man, who was a twice-divorced father of four with a violent past, was a person who killed Colleen McMillan. He led a nomadic work life, and he was in Canada several times in the early 70s. Investigators concluded he'd likely killed two other young women on the official highway of tears list. Pamela Darlington and Gail Ways, who were both 19 years old. They were both murdered in 1973, a year before Colleen McMillan. Circumstances linked the man to those crimes, but not DNA. With the information provided by the RCMP, Newport, Oregon investigator Ron Benson took a fresh look at the man. He's suspected of murdering seven people in Oregon and others across the United States, Investigators believe he may have killed up to 20 people in all across the U.S. and Canada. And some have compared him to infamous serial killer Ted Bundy, all because of one carefully preserved blouse. All right, so before I say who it is, that article's a little jinky, right? A little what? Jinky? Like, saying that 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 this guy's a Ted Bundy? That's a little off, don't you think?
1: This guy's... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it. that is fueling a mainstream perception that is untrue.
0: Yeah, so what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of episodes is linked to this guy. Today, I'm just going to talk briefly about him, and then we're going to go back and look through the likelihood of him being a Ted Bundy. And I just want to say, as I'm talking about this guy, he has never been convicted of murder, Okay. He has zero confirmed victims, but he is suspected of being linked to 20 homicides.
1: Right. But he does have the attack.
0: He has an attack and that's, that's, that's what's going to come up today. Um, go ahead. Well,
1: With her DNA being found, honestly. Um, so with his DNA being found in her case, okay, that's the only thing that, uh, to, okay, so then if we swing all the way back around to the blood drop that we talked about earlier in the episode, then I start wondering things,
0: right? Uh, yeah, that, well, <laughs> well, that that's the reason I brought all of that up.
1: So, Because you're going to want a situation where, like, you know, you would want a situation where, like, I mean, I've never been driving through Canada, so... If somebody were to say, like, I killed people in Canada and my DNA was found on one of them, there's got to be some more information there because I wasn't in Canada. But this guy had elements of his life that added up to it being a possibility, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the DNA starts it. And he, I assume he, um, his DNA was in the system uh, was it in the? Was it in Codis?
0: Yeah, it was in Codis. It 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 makes an Interpol match for Canada. Interpol, that's with what a, it was. Yeah. With COD, yeah, but it's a yeah, it's a cross match with Codis.
1: Okay, and um, so that starts it, right? And I'm always like, I go on high alert when you've got a like non-convicted um serial killer of twenty or whatever, right, right. now. The DNA match came after he was already dead, right?
0: Yeah, so let's talk about him for a second. So who we're talking about here is a man named Bobby Jack Fowler. And Not
1: to be confused with Bobby Joe Long, who we correct. just finished.
0: Right, that's why I stuck to Robert Long. because that Robert Long was referred to as Robert Long in his court documents. But he was known as Bobby Joe Long. Now, Bobby Jack Fowler, his name is actually, according to what I have here, Bobby Jack Fowler. Like, that's literally his whole name. Um, he was born June 12, 1939, in Texas, in a place called Merkle, Texas. That uh, If you if you look up uh, Merkle, Texas, I think today it probably has about 2,000 people. He was born to Selva or Mutt Fowler and Omelie Hathaway Fowler. He was their second son. He had an older brother named Walter who was born in 1934. His younger sister is Susan. She was born in 1950. Weirdly, they both died in 2004. So that's Walter and Susan. They both died in 2004, which was two years before Bobby Jack dies. Um, his parents beat him when they were children. Now, March 6, 1959, when he's 20, Uh, excuse me, when he's 19, turning 20, Bobby Jack gets married to a woman named Teresa Patton, and they have a bucket full of children, Johnny, Janie, Pam, Loretta, and Randall. He has multiple arrests in 1969, 10 years later, and he and Teresa end up getting divorced in May of 1971, uh, and he decides he's going to move to British Columbia. Fowler was a, he was a transient. He was a construction worker who is known to have traveled pretty extensively around the U S and Canada. Uh, He, according to some of these bizarre articles about him, which almost all come out between 2012 and 2015, he is described as rabbiting around North America on the list of places he has been British Columbia, Florida, Iowa, Louisiana, Texas, Oregon, South Carolina, Arizona, Tennessee, and Washington State. During his travels, he is arrested a lot. Um, He has multiple violent crimes that he is arrested for. Uh, He is an abuser of amphetamine, methamphetamine, and alcohol. Uh, His criminal record includes attempted murder sexual assault, and various gun charges. In 1969, he was charged with murdering a man and woman in Texas, but he was only convicted of discharging a firearm within the city limits. So I'll let you guys think about that for a second decide what you want to do with it. What do you think of it, Meg?
1: Well, there's an opportunity there.
0: <laughs> well, there, there is. There's definitely an opportunity there. But can we just say that discharging a firearm within the city limits is not the same thing as murder?
1: It absolutely isn't, and uh, I don't know. I I was aware of that. I don't know all the circumstances, but it was almost like they were like, well, it's better than nothing.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's what they could get him on. So Fowler ended up spending time in a Tennessee prison for rape, sexual assault, and attempted murder. He tied a woman up. He beat the hell out of her with his own belt, and then he covered her up with shrubbery and left her to die. And again, this is all coming after the fact, like that it all comes out and comes together. He liked to travel far and wide. He was usually driving older, beat-up cars. He would frequently pick up hitchhikers, and he liked to hang out in bars and motels. Uh, Fowler believed that the women he came into contact with uh, who were hitchhiking and hanging out in bars apparently wanted to be sexually assaulted. So that's according to the star Phoenix. Uh, It's another weird article about him. So he ends up being a suspect in a couple of uh, highway of tears, murder cases, three of them specifically. His DNA is, Now, if you go reading the Wikipedia on this and a couple of the other websites, I'm telling you they're wrong. It says his DNA was found on the body of Colleen McMillan. That is not accurate from what I see.
1: It's on her shirt, right?
0: Yeah. I see that his DNA was found on her blouse. Now, I'm getting nitpicky on this because... Like, again, the whole point here is to sort of deconstruct the mainstream media. I will say this about Bobby Jack Fowler. I do not believe Bobby Jack is at the end of, like, me looking at his whole story. I don't think I'm going to go, nope, that guy didn't kill anything anyone. Um, I just don't know how weird it's going to be.
1: Well, and it kind of started out with, like, well, is this guy, like, Ted Bundy? Well, what what is, like, Ted Bundy?
0: That That's a great question. Um, so the answer to that question for me is no, um, because what we know Ted Bundy for, like, he is a straight up serial rapist killer who was, uh, pretty sadistic, um, by I, you know, I don't know if that counts when he's doing as much as he was doing post mortem, but what Bundy was known for was exploiting his victims into positions of trust in public, and then, like, uh, he he would try and put them in a situation of trust where he had an injury or he was an authority figure, and then he was basically tricking them, leading them away, knocking them unconscious, assaulting them, killing them. Not necessarily in that order.
1: And I always, uh, so I agree with all that. Um, There was an element of Bundy, though, that uh, it was super concerning because uh, one would think to themselves, well, I would have helped that nice-looking guy, too, right? Yes. And I don't think that's the case with um, Bobby Jack Fowler at all. Like, sure. he looks horrifying.
0: No, so, okay, when Bobby Jack Fowler, in 1974, when these crimes are occurring, he's working for a uh, Prince George Roofing Company called Happy's Roofing, which is I since permanently closed. I'm sure it didn't help if he worked there. The the deal with uh, Bobby Jack Fowler is sort of twofold. One, do we believe the Highway of Tears serial killer had 18 victims or whatever? And Bobby Jack sort of proves that that's probably not the case. It's probably made up of these people who had one or two or three murders, which is something that you and I both had sort of looked at and gone, that sounds more likely with these missing women that were related to the E Pana project uh, and the highway of tears, either way you want to say that because one, one's a much larger number. That's the reason I differentiate between the two of them. This guy, in my opinion, I do not see him as being someone who could easily lure young women into trusting him. He's looks like a meth head on the run in all of his pictures.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely don't think that he was um so the article must be referencing the number.
0: I I think so. I think it's I think it's about the number. I don't think it's about what he was doing to them. Although I will say here's what gives me pause, and this is how we'll end this episode on him, just to start it off. Um this is what makes me like not understand Bobby Jack Fowler. On June 28th of 1995, Fowler gets arrested at the Newport, Oregon Tides Inn motel when a woman jumps out of a window and runs away with a rope tied to her ankle. So he's gone into this motel with a woman. She escapes, literally escapes, and she survives what he's doing to her, and she reports him to the Newport police on he so he gets arrested and I was genu- gonna say,
1: they like came to the scene like they, yeah. there were other people at the hotel or motel that saw what was happening and so it all happens right there
0: yeah so he he gets arrested and he ends up being convicted of kidnapping in the first degree attempted rape uh sexual abuse on the first degree coercion, assault in the fourth degree and menacing he's sentenced to about 17 years, uh, with the possibility of parole. And this all happens in early 1996. Uh, unfortunately, uh, 10 years later in May of 2006, uh, when he is 66 years old in the Oregon state penitentiary, Bobby Jack Fowler dies from lung cancer and his body is cremated before he can ever be convicted of murder. um,
1: He wasn't even suspected of murder at that time, right?
0: Correct. But I'm saying he's never going to be convicted in a way that like clears these other cases that he's suspected of now. Um, And I think that's kind of where we leave it off is, uh, well, let me ask you this. Do you think Bobby Jack Fowler has 20 victims?
1: I do not.
0: Yeah. I, I have so many questions about him and like uh, what's going on here. Um, you know, for this American meth head roofer, and like, I'm sorry to say it that way, but that's like, that's how he looks. That's how he seems. He's clearly in this motel doing something to this woman that gets him caught when he's 55 years old.
1: She gave a very, um, obviously she lived, she was uh, very traumatized, but um, she gives a very thorough and accurate account. And this was a woman that like he had just met at, uh, like a bar. Yeah. And, uh, there's no reason that anybody ever, you know, brought up that, uh, she would be lying about it. Right. Plus there were witnesses to the noise and like, they saw it like she jumped out of a window yeah. and like she was stark naked. Yeah. Um, there was all kinds of things that happened that kind of gave her credibility.
0: Yeah. And, uh, she sets off a chain of events that, uh, I don't even know Maybe that's saying it wrong She seems to have ended uh, What is potentially a pretty violent murder spree Of a couple of people That's how I feel about him I don't know how you feel about him I just don't I don't know about Like the Canadian cases I sort of look at them And I go, all right There's some DNA there uh, In the first case The other two seem like it could be him We're going to talk about those cases Um, but I just, like, I don't see, I definitely don't see him being Ted Bundy.
1: He's not Ted Bundy. I, that's a weird, uh, that's a weird assertion even I think, but I mean, I get where they're saying like,
0: it's the number of murders. That's what's doing.
1: Guy that like, yeah, he was killing all these women and he's certainly, I mean, there is no, uh, highway of tears, serial killer. There might be like several of them. But there's not one, right? There's not
0: one big encompassing serial killer, no.
1: No, there's not. And um, to me, it so there is DNA evidence, right? Yeah. And without that, I don't even buy that case. Then the two that are kind of peripheral to it, right? Yeah. That they've said perhaps, you know, this is him. They don't have any DNA evidence in those cases, And while I do see where, like, they could say, um, they can see the, like, similarities, the relevance, and, you know, it'd be great to get those resolved in some way, Um, I have a really hard time with that. And then it really blew my brain when the whole, like, drop of blood of the four-year-old came up. Because I'm going, well, was it just a spot on her shirt? (laughs) Because, like, what if he, you know there's a a spot on someone's shirt could be explained right yeah. in a non way right um it, it i don't know it just gives me pause now i'm not saying this guy's innocent i read the account of the woman at the hotel in oregon and he's he's not a good guy right he he's not a good guy and um i'm just saying like You know, these are the types of things that we have to be kind of wary of and not just say, oh, well, there's evidence. So it's got to be him. I lean that way. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm going, wait a second. Like, this is, it's not quite adding up for me yet. But as we go through this, hopefully we'll be able to make like some sort of heads or tails of it. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to go through and we're going to talk about some of uh, what was said about. Uh, Bobby Jack Fowler along the way. I will say there have been a lot of retractions printed about Bobby Jack Fowler and I will point them out when they come up where people have been misquoted and like some things just don't make sense. Um, But we're going to spend an episode or two talking about him and uh, then we're going to move on to another one of these monsters. But in the meantime, we're going to – be revisiting some cases we've talked about in the past, and we're going to look at his timeline, and we're we're just going to kind of pull together what we can find about him. I will say this about Bobby Jack Fowler: it is one of the most complicated serial murder cases I've looked at because of him being in prison for the last eleven years and not really being caught for serial killings. like no, there's no official record on him in terms of like conversations with him or charges for him or like it's, it's that's, that part is sort of wild for me.
1: Right. And you know, it, in tr- it like it's baffling. However, it shouldn't be surprising because that's the whole point of DNA science and the, you know, Interpol, CODIS, cross-reference, you know, database. Um, and it's supposed to be in such a way that it can put aside questions, right? Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and, re- it, and it's supposed to reveal things like this, right? Um, now, granted, he's not going to go to trial, Right there's no conviction here hopefully like I guess if her family listened to whatever the evidence was and you know if they felt like it helped them uh move forward that'd be great right yeah but I don't know exactly the circumstances there um and you know as as time goes by though more and more of these cases are going to be penned back to perpetrators that are dead and a lot of the Highway of Tears murders, a lot of them are going to be the same. I yeah. think just because of the age of the cases and, like, I don't know. Not if the same right.
0: killer. You mean the same situation where the killer is deceased.
1: Correct. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that it, <clears throat> the two that have been sort of linked here with the DNA that was found on, the, on uh, Colleen McMillan, uh, they could have just as easily been one-offs as they could be related to this case in my, what I've seen. Okay. I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm just saying I don't see enough yet to link it. Right. Just from.
0: Yeah, no, I understand it. I understand how you're putting it. Yeah.
1: Okay. And so um I do think that it's going to be really disappointing and, the point of some of these matches isn't going to be a situation where you're bringing a perpetrator to justice as much as you are trying to identify and close um, a case for a family, right? Right. And um, that that's a little bit tough because, you know, to me, it, I just, I feel like it needs to go through a process. And unfortunately we're at the cycle in DNA where like, uh, there is more identifying technology available. But, and, you know, for whatever reason that the evidence was kept 40 years ago or whatever, um, they, they're able to utilize it now. I But there's always going to be room for like errors happening. And so, you know, I wouldn't need a whole lot. It would just be just a little bit, right? Uh, what I mean by that is like, Give me something else, like as to why. Yeah, put something wasn't with it. Just you know, Bobby Jack Fowler, like grabbing her arm to keep her from stepping out in front of a car or something like that, right? Like anything like that, because um, to me, it it just there's a, there's some room there that has to be accounted for to me.
0: Yeah. And that's what we're going to explore a little bit to see what we can figure out from what's publicly available and what records we've been able to hunt down. We're going to talk a little bit about Bobby Jack Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.
2: Of the field With you as my love. What well, time does not take time doesn't take with you as my love It only gives to Just to get to you My lily of the field